Hey listeners, if you like History of Horror Uncut, make sure to check out She Kills, a Shudder original podcast by, for, and about women in horror. Join icons like Jennifer Tilly, Barbara Crampton, and Dee Wallace as they talk with genre innovators like Karen Kusama, Emily Deschanel, and Alex Esso about representation, progress, and how modern takes on old female horror tropes have given women a platform like never before. Be sure to subscribe to She Kills and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or really wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. I'm Shutter curator Sam Zimmerman. This is the History of Horror Uncut, an essential audio companion to Eli Roth's History of Horror. Eli Roth's History of Horror is a seven-episode docuseries threading the evolution and immortality of the genre and all its terrors within. These are the full, candid interviews, most of which can only be found and heard right here in this podcast. You'll hear how the genre shaped these filmmakers, authors, makeup maestros. You'll hear the personal, unbridled appreciation that only comes from those who know how special horror can be. Welcome to a more intimate history of horror. The History of Horror Uncut is built with the full, raw interviews conducted in production for Eli Roth's History of Horror. In some cases, Eli leads the talk itself. In others, deeply knowledgeable producer Kurt Sayanga stepped in. So you might not think of a horror when you hear Diablo Cody's name. Today, we're going to change that. We're going to spin your head right around. She is the sharp, stylish writer who owes a lot to the genre, and that influence was apparent even before her work within it. I mean, you might remember the Suspiria and Herschel Gordon Lewis name checks in Juno. In 2009, Cody teamed with the great director Karin Kusama for demonic horror comedy Jennifer's Body. I fucking love this movie. It's a deeply underappreciated movie, one that is funny and blood-spattered and cutting. It only gets more so as time passes. It's really one of our best horror films about teenage girlhood and monstrous friendships. But its release really suffered at the hands of misguided marketing and Cody's own divisiveness at that time. Interviewed for History of Horror, Cody gets into the genre's many facets, including her introduction and relationship with it, her favorite films, the genre's use as metaphor, and she, of course, dips into Jennifer's body, its impact, and what sunk a now-rising cult gem. Here now is Diablo Cody. Listen up, ghouls. So, what was your uh, introduction to the horror genre? Well, um, I grew up, like most children of the 80s, obsessed with uh, going to the video store. And there was always the horror section, obviously. And to me, it was like this treasure trove of horrifying delights. I was so terrified of the movies, and yet I wanted to see all of them. So I, basically every trip to the video store culminated in me begging my mother to let me rent an R-rated horror movie. And um, I just, I've always liked to be scared. <laughs> I like anything that like provokes a strong emotion, and being scared is about as good as it gets. What films left their mark on you early on? I w might have been one of the few uh, eight-year-old girls in the 1980s who was fully obsessed with and infatuated with Freddy Krueger. Nightmare on Elm Street was so impactful on me, the entire series. Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is my favorite one. I think the thing I loved about it is it, was, it wasn't just scary, it was funny. You know, there was always these campy elements. Robert Englund just played that to the hilt. It was almost uh, cartoonish, and yet at the same time there were, like, these amazing iconic scares. And... Yeah, Nightmare 3 Dream Warriors? Yes. Okay. Tell me a, a little about the plot of that <laughs> and what made that cool. Dream Warriors. The beautiful Patricia Arquette is uh, struggling with nightmares, like uh, which is you know pretty much the standard setup for a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. And she winds up in a mental hospital with other troubled teens, all of whom are being tormented by Freddy Krueger in their sleep. 
But the cool thing is through hypnosis and therapy led by Nancy from the original film, they're able to sort of take on these like superhero personas in their dreams and fight back against Freddy. So like one of them becomes this like super cool punk chick and uh, the, the kid who's in the wheelchair is like able to walk and they're, it's, it's cool. The movie's cool because it's, it's about dream. It's about wish fulfillment as well as, you know, <laughs> being murdered. <laughs> Any other, and perhaps as you got a little bit older, what were your favorites in your, uh, say, mid, you know, troubled teen period? Oh, my troubled teens. For a while, there was that fun horror renaissance where we had a Scream, and I Know What You Did Last Summer, and all those fun kind of popcorn horror movies, and those were really fun. And I kind of wish we would have another little mini renaissance like that where people were talking about horror again. And then, of course, I started to get into the cooler stuff, like Jalo and, you know, Dario Argento and... Uh, Herschel Gordon-Lewis was somebody who always fascinated me, and so I started to kind of, you know, learn more about some of the lesser-known directors. But I also, I always loved the blockbusters, too. And to me, like, going to see horror movies in the theater, which I started to do as a teenager, was always an experience. It's still something I enjoy doing. I'd still rather see it in a theater anytime. Tell me about, that's something actually I've brought up with a few people, the importance of seeing some of these films with the crowd. There, like, nothing beats the collective experience of seeing horror movies in a dark theater with a lot of people who are feeling the similar stress. <laughs> I think it's just, it's just special. And I love that psychologically there's no escape. You're just kind of trapped there. Uh, whereas when you're at home, you know, you can hit pause and go get a glass of water. It's not the same. You know, I had a weird experience the other day where I was watching It, the new movie, uh, on a plane, and I didn't think it was possible to get frightened on an airplane, and I did. <laughs> so, the, the hats off to that movie. It was that immersive, I guess, even on a little screen. Uh, did you see the original miniseries? Did I see the original miniseries? <laughs> I watched the It miniseries from, I think, what was it, 1990? I've, I've probably seen that 25 times. Uh, I had a, a friend who was sort of an equal horror fan, and we used to watch it all the time. We were, we were so completely obsessed with Tim Curry in that movie. And it was, that movie was actually my introduction to Tim Curry. Like, we went and rented Rocky Horror after seeing It because we wanted to see what else this Tim Curry had done. So for us, like, Benny Wise was his iconic role. Like, it was actually, in retrospect, like, kind of crappy, and yet the people were actually worried that the that this new big-budget Warner Brothers movie was not going to do it justice because Tim Curry was so good as the clown. It's interesting also about the new movie is it kind of changes the whole dynamic of the novel uh, miniseries, which, you know, present day and the oh, yeah. flashback. I, mm. So if the whole movie's supposed to be, well, the whole book was about repression, you kind of lose that, right? You do, you do lose it, and I, now I feel like I don't want to say anything negative. Well, he's been making this second horror half, right? So. Exactly, I, that, but that was my one quibble with the film, as I did feel like the setting in the 50s was essential. What it is really about is like the horrors of society. The scariest things in that book are not supernatural. The scariest things in that book are homophobia, child abuse, misogyny, racism, Henry Bowers, who's like the product of, you know, systemic abuse. And I don't know, I just thought that the 50s were the, the, the 50s were the correct era for that film. I understand why they didn't set it in the 50s this time. I think 80s nostalgia is like a huge thing right now because of Stranger Things. Tell me about uh, Fright Night. 
your relationship to Fright Night? Oh man, Fright Night, that was one of the original movies that captured my imagination when I was a kid. And I was really fortunate to be able to host a screening of it here at the New Beverly and Tom Holland was there and you know, we talked all about it. Fright Night is just so imaginative. It's funny, conceptually it's so cool. Vampires classic. I mean, it's that was that was one of my favorites, and I kind of they did remake it. I was gonna say I, fe- I feel like it's kind of forgotten to time, but I guess not. Yeah, the, the remake's actually quite good. Yeah. So Craig Gillespie's a good director. I Tanya, go Craig. Also, Fright Night, the original shows I just watched again recently. It's just like, oh, I forgot how eighties this is. <laughs> I know. I know, it's kind of amazing to look back at those films which felt so current and fresh at the time because they were and go, oh my god, is that really, is that actually how things were? But it's... Like the dance sequence in particular. Is <laughs> yeah. There was something so like overblown and flamboyant about the 80s that really like lent itself to a good horror aesthetic, I think. Speaking of The Lost Boys. Yes. Tell me about The Lost Boys. I really, I, I love The Lost Boys. I actually saw Corey Feldman a couple of weeks ago, and I was so completely starstruck. I actually begged the poor man for a photo, which I never do, and I got it. <laughs> but I was like, man, you're like one of the Frog Brothers. The Lost Boys, what was great about it is similar to The Goonies and some other movies of that era, is it was about kids. It was about kids saving the day. And it was also like, you know, you had this incredibly dark, sexy component of like Kiefer Sutherland and um, Jamie Gertz. Like that was, they were beautiful. (laughs) So it was sort of like, the movie was like dark, glamorous, sexy, empowering for me as like a young viewer. It was like a little bit psychedelic. You want to talk about weird scenes. There's like the guy who plays what feels like a 19 minute saxophone solo at one point when (laughs) outside. The movie's a little weird, but it's a favorite of mine. Of course, there are different kinds of uh, ways of using vampires. Most of the time, they're these romantic figures, so either tragic or dangerous or, you know, hypersexual or, you know, massive killing machines. So if you have a preference. For my what kind of vampires I like? Killing machines, for sure. Like, yeah, I'll take that over sparkly and sexy. <laughs> Although Kiefer was both. True. Yeah. <laughs> So if we're talking killing machine vampire movies, what comes to mind? Oh, man. You know, the other day I was actually, I was thinking it's time to rewatch Bram Stoker's Dracula, which, you know, is completely overwrought and was not super beloved at the time, but I think definitely has its merits. It's so intense, but I love that about it. It's romantic and it's also um, really visceral. In the true sense of the word. Let the right one is amazing. I love the original and the remake. I don't, there's so, when, when you can get like a good performance out of children in a horror movie, there's like nothing more effective. <laughs> like, it's just creepy. Why is that? So- there's just something inherently creepy about kids. Even my own children, if they wake me up in the middle of the night and they're just standing motionless next to the bed, I'm briefly scared. And I made them. So it's... <laughs> kids are creepy. Speaking of creepy kids, The Omen... Oh, yeah. The Omen back in the day. To this day, if I meet someone named Damien, I think of that movie. Like, I was <laughs> I was never able to shed that one. And The Omen 2 is kind of interesting, too. It's not great, but I... So I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school for 12 years, and any movie that involves the devil or demonic possession scares the absolute crap out of me. It just, like, hits too close to home. Because, like, in the religion I was raised in, that is, like, the real adversary. It's, like, a true villain. It's not Freddy Krueger. It's something that we're told exists in our lives and is trying to hurt us. And so I get very uneasy watching stuff like The Omen, Exorcist, 
witch board, anything that has like an occult element freaks me out. The Exorcist comes up a lot, of course, in these interviews. Yeah. And so uh, do you remember how old were you when you first saw that? I, I was definitely too young the first time I saw The Exorcist. Um, I don't know if any minors should be viewing that movie. I want to say I was like probably 12 years old. And I know I was watching it with my family. And I remember at one point I did have to get up and use the little girl's room. And I was like, Pazuzu is 100% going to be down the hall waiting for me. I've never run quicker to the bathroom and back. Yeah, anybody, everybody who's been Catholic is, is sat here is. <laughs> you can do like you cut together a montage of, of recovering Catholics talking about. I'm actually thinking of doing that. Yeah, I mean, it is really like. And then, of course, they're always like, oh, it was based on a true story. This really happened. But nobody can tell you really if it did. And it's like, it's, I don't know. Like, I can't. Like, Do you have any belief in the supernatural? Or uh... I do. I absolutely have a strong belief in ghosts, the afterlife. And I do think there are, like, certain forces that are perhaps not to be trifled with. You know, there are a lot of people who dismiss that kind of thinking. But I don't know. I've just, I've witnessed too many things in my life that are eerie to think that this this plane that we're on is the only thing that exists. Are there any uh, ghost story movies that come to mind, too, that affected you? I mean, I'm sure you've heard about this one a lot, but, like, Poltergeist, that was actually one of the first horror movies I was ever allowed to watch. And what shocks me about that one, and I don't, I, perhaps I have my nostalgia goggles on, but even when I watch it today, I'm impressed by how effective it is and how just creepy it is. You know, it's a great ghost movie. Candyman. Oh, yeah, okay. Although we actually have that in the slasher uh, column. Oh, I guess, I, I guess it is. House. You've seen the Japanese, the Hosu, so... No. Oh, Jesus, that is the most fucked up movie. You should watch that. <laughs> really? Uh, you have the Criterion Channel or something? Mm-hmm. It's on Criterion, so... And it's the the Japanese. American House was based on it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, maybe, but no, no, no. Nothing could be based on the Japanese. <laughs> it's impossible to describe. It's harder to describe than uh, than Suspiria. Oh wow. Okay. Suspiria remake. I'm interested in that. Like. Yeah, that'll be. We'll see. Yeah. An interesting one is the Nosfer two uh, remake because uh, Doug Jones here uh, yesterday and he's playing the vampire. You know, and he was right here in this chair. Yeah, and, uh, right there. Oh, that's awesome. I know it was pretty awesome actually. And, um, and <laughs> they're actually using the backgrounds, like parts of the original film, but then like putting the actors in. So that's oh. kind of really interesting. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm obs- I'm obsessed with Doug Jones right now. Because I, after I saw The Shape of Water, I then immediately went into the research hole where I wanted to know everything about him. And I found out he played Mac tonight in those McDonald's commercials from the 80s. And I was like, what? This guy's been scaring me forever. And he's the leader <laughs> of the gentleman in Hush and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. What? Yeah, you know. Hush, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys, yeah. No, I did not. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, and I just, I'm cool. That's a cool guest. Sorry about me. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to jump back to ghost stories. Effective ghost stories. Yeah. Um, Okay, wait, where was I? Ghost stories. Candyman. Does Candyman count as a ghost story? It's actually, again, I think it's more in the slasher category. It's more in the slasher category. I thought Candyman was really cool because, you know, you're so used to seeing these traditional haunted house movies, and it's like the opposite. The setting is so gritty. And uh, Virginia Madsen, so good. 
Yeah, it was just, I remember seeing it at the time, and I will say I was not, like, the mo- like you know, I was a kid, I was not the most educated viewer at the time, and, but I remember being impressed by it even then and thinking, oh, that was something different. Why did you see Hellraiser? I saw Hellraiser at my neighbor's house <laughs> because I don't think that, what, that one would have been allowed under my roof. That one stuck with me. There was, a, there was a lot to be frightened of in that movie. It wasn't, it, like, sometimes there's just, like, one baddie, and that, that was just, like, yeah, one horrifying creation after the next, yes. Plus, it comes with a fair amount of psychosexual baggage. It's funny how a lot of that stuff goes over your head when you're a kid, though. Like, <laughs> I don't think I realized, like, how, like, how dirty Freddy Krueger was until I was much older. Yeah, that's something, you know, watching the first one again, he's, he's straight up evil, horrible, you know, yeah. nasty child molester killer, you know? And yeah. And then, then he quickly becomes this, you know, lovable killer. You begin to root for him, for sure. Like, as the films progress, like, you suddenly start, like, wanting Freddy to succeed, which is a strange position to be in as a viewer. Which is also weird because it's driven by market forces, essentially. His transference from villain to uh, anti-hero, whatever he is, you know, mm-hmm. largely because it keeps making money. And so you can't really kill him. Oh, that's true. That's true. So, like, if you gave people, if it was satisfying to kill him, then he can't come back. So you have to turn him into, like, your hero. Mm-hmm. Actually, I want to talk about Poltergeist a yeah. bit more. Yeah. Tell me about what's, what's what make that film work. Poltergeist works because of character development, honestly. You buy the things that are happening because the family is so real. The parents are so human. Like There's that scene everybody always talks about where they're sort of casually smoking pot and goofing around with each other. And the scene where um, the mom figures out that the chairs can move around the kitchen... She's, like, exuberant. She thinks it's the coolest thing ever. She's, like, this 70s pot-smoking mom who's excited that there are supernatural forces in her house. It kind of just turns the usual stereotype of the, like, horrified woman on its ear. And so then it's all the more effective when shit really starts to go down and you see the, the family completely driven out of their home by these evil forces. And also, like... The casting's incredible. Like, the team that comes into the house to help them. Like, the kids are great. The kids are so natural. It just kind of has a little bit of that, like, Spielberg magic. I have to say, like, I'm always shocked by the gratuitous, like, face-tearing-off scene because it does not feel like it belongs in that movie. But other than that, I probably would have cut that. Actually, I interviewed the guy who had his face torn <laughs> off. So. That's awesome. He's Spielberg's assistant, apparently, before that. So. Oh, no way. And they did that practically back then, so like, what, oh, God. And the whole movie, yeah, it's all, it's all practical effects, basically. I know, and I've actually gotten to a point where everything that I see when I watch a horror movie now, I assume it's all phony. So then when I find out after the fact that it's practical, I almost feel bad, like I didn't appreciate it in the moment. I actually had that moment with The Shape of Water, which you'd think, knowing Del Toro, I would have known, like, oh, he actually did this with, like, a suit, but when I watched it, I remember thinking, oh, this is like motion capture or, you know, this is, you know, it's incredible to me that Doug Jones was like swimming around in that get up. That's why I'm like so obsessed with Doug Jones right now. And that's interesting, too, isn't it? That it's like that's what's changed with modern technology and people's awareness of the mechanics of film. Yeah. It kind of kind of kills it. Does People's awareness of the mechanics of filmmaking has killed everything. I, we've, the audience has never been more educated. The audience has never been more cognizant of how things are made. And I think that there is a little bit of the sparkle missing because of that. Even in something as basic as a TV show, viewers didn't used to be aware of who the showrunner was. And now 
if a showrunner gets fired and replaced, the fans are aware of that. I, that wasn't happening in the 70s. I, I don't know. I just feel like everybody's looking behind the curtain. Yeah. And, and of like, oh, Stephen J. Canals actually moved on to something else and given this to his... Yeah. And like, I don't, like, as a, like, selfishly, as a person who creates stuff, I don't want everybody to know how it's made, who it's making it. Like, please just, like, enjoy it. Like, immerse yourself. I wonder if it takes a long period for people to, you know, much like films become that are, you know, less successful and they come out eventually become cult items later on. Maybe it's because there's some distance between. Absolutely. Time. Absolutely. Even Jennifer's body, which I don't know if we're going to talk about this. Oh, we are, yeah. yeah, I'll get to it. I was saying like, you know, like at the time there's like this huge backlash against Megan Fox as like a human because she said some mean things about Michael Bay. And, like, I felt like people did not want to embrace the movie. And now I hear, I do hear positive things about it from, from people who have discovered it. And I think to myself, like, oh, well, I would have appreciated that positivity at the time <laughs> it came out. But I guess that's how it works. Well, Ginger's body, since you brought it up, first of all, tell me the, I'm getting everybody involved with the films to sort of tell the plot you know, yes. Things. Oh God. So Imagine if I can't remember what this movie's about. I actually haven't seen it in like ten years, um, or nine. It's been nine years since it came out, um, and I probably haven't watched it since the premiere. Jennifer's Body is about two best friends, Needy and Jennifer, and Jennifer is a alpha female bitch who is beautiful and popular, and Needy is her aptly named worshipful nerdy friend. And Jennifer is the victim of a demonic ritual gone wrong, where this rock band, in an attempt to become famous, attempt to murder her because they think she is a virgin and that they are sacrificing a virgin, but she is not a virgin. And as a result, the spell goes haywire, and Jennifer is possessed by a demon and starts eating boys to satisfy the demon, and Needy has to stop her. That is what the film is about. And um, <laughs> was, it, uh, was it named after the, uh, the, the whole song? The movie was absolutely named after the whole song, yes. I'm a big whole fan. I wanted Cordy to be happy about that. I think sometimes she's happy about it and sometimes she isn't. Well, you know, she's <laughs> an interesting woman. Um, so, well, yeah, were Jennifer and Needy uh, kind of purposeful revisions of the uh, final girl and possessed woman trope? Um, well, I, you know... For me, Jennifer and Needy were supposed to represent sort of two sides of the same coin. I sometimes, I, you know, everything that I write is personal because I'm a narcissistic artist. And I sometimes, particularly at that time in my life, I was, I didn't know, am I a Jennifer or am I a Needy? Like, am I a person who is inherently noble or am I the kind of person who is, allows myself to become possessed by selfish impulses? And it was something that I was dealing with a lot at the time because, like, I had very recently become successful after toiling in obscurity. So it was, like, really about, like, a demon of fame, to be honest. <laughs> Such a weird thing to say. No. But. No, it's not. It makes perfect sense, actually. And which actually kind of gets into the uses of horror and genre filmmaking, actually, as a way to confront certain issues in a uh, format where you're not hitting people over the head necessarily with the, this is a message picture. Yeah. No, like, in a lot of ways, like, it was sort of one of the more serious and symbolic movies that I've written, even if people don't see it that way. You know, it was about how teenage girls are objectified. Um, it was about, you know, f the female sexual appetites. 
It was the classic trope about puberty, which I know we've seen in movies before, the idea of puberty being a transformative thing and using a sort of a monstrous transformation as a way of talking about that. It was also for me, like, I had just come off doing, like, a really quirky, cute indie movie, so it was a way of saying, like, actually, like, that is a small part of who I am, and, like, the real me is interested in watching, like, Megan Fox eat somebody. <laughs> well, to me, I'll say more. Actually, the, the whole, um, this whole episode on the Demonic Possession episode is, like, so much hits, like, a lot of uh, feminist themes and particularly, you know, um, and anger. Yeah. Uh, throughout it. So as far as addressing rape culture, which obviously is, you know, a topic much talked about now, but uh, but at the time of that, it seemed like that was still just even mentioning it seemed to piss people off. Yeah. Certainly the scene where Jennifer is sacrificed is definitely, you know, a, symbolically a rape, for sure. I think actually that's why The Exorcist is so effective is because they chose this virginal tween girl. <laughs> And then to see her just completely defiled by this demon is, is like, so horrifying. In a way, it's such a powerful image, too. It's, like, a complete slap into the, in the face to everything that we put on a pedestal in our culture, I guess. Well, could you convey those themes, that kind of malignancy of, you know, that kind of culture, uh, the misogyny, like, uh, as effectively if it wasn't in a horror format? Or, or rather, let me invert that and basically say, does the horror, did the horror format give you a way to... Um, portrayed in a way that was maybe heightened and more emotional than you'd be able to do in another, you know, movie of the week kind of. Oh, completely. Like, that's why I I haven't been able to make anything in the horror genre since. Probably, I mean, I would love to. It's just Jennifer's body was not successful. So, you know, nobody was chomping at the bit for me to make another horror movie. It was so freeing for me to be able to explore those themes of female friendship in a completely just heightened, gory, bananas atmosphere. You know, they have this fight at the end of the movie, and Nady stabs Jennifer in the heart, and Jennifer says, my tit. And Nady goes, no, your heart. And it was like, it's like my way of saying, like, you're all staring at this girl's breasts, and I've instructed you to do so, but what's, what this is really about is her feelings. You don't get to do over-the-top stuff like that in in a in more under in a more understated genre, you know. Like you can only do that in a horror movie, and I it it was it was a joy. And uh, you mentioned the female friendship part of it, and that's to me also seems like so key. And that yeah, I have a teenage daughter now, so it's real really interesting this is to fun. watch their uh, her and her friends' interactions. Yeah, uh, frightening would be the other word. <laughs> Sometimes I want to believe that interactions between kids have become super positive because our world is becoming less tolerant of bullying and more inclusive, but I don't know if that's the case. No. Okay. <laughs> it's worse. All right. Awesome. The, the sort of horrors of female friendship have been explored in everything from, you know, Heathers to Heathers <laughs> and Mean Girls. And, you know, the one thing that I remember about the friendships that I had at that age is they were incredibly intense, more so than my romantic relationships that I was starting to have with guys. I was, I was just completely enamored with my best friend. And yet there was these forces conspiring to tear us apart because, you know, as you get older, you don't have the space in your life to nurture those friendships anymore. But there is that moment, that sweet spot in the teen years where it's, it is so intense and like, I mean, you read stories in the news about teenage girls, like, murdering each other. And it's like, they're crimes of passion. It's messed up. Um, part, of the, part of the, you know, Megan Fox characters is that <clears throat> she is so, you know, like, glamorous and beautiful. And there's, like, a power that comes with that. Yeah. 
and it's also a power that's a curse, essentially. So speak a little about that. Yeah, well, the the character of uh, Jennifer, is, as played by Megan Fox, is actually a really intelligent, clever, interesting person, but nobody cares about that. That's not why she's worshipped at her high school. She's worshipped because she looks like Megan Fox um, and because she's twirling a flag at a short skirt in the school gym. In a lot of ways, you know, she's a she's a much more dynamic character than Needy, who's supposedly the the smart bookish one. But Jennifer, she does have this incredible power that comes with her beauty. She uses it, but it's not nearly as satisfying to her as when she actually gets these supernatural powers and she's able to. You know, the one thing that makes me very happy is, you know, we have, you know, all the kids are sending around these animated gifts these days. I sound so old. <laughs> like, I keep seeing the, this one where, from Jennifer's body where she's flicking the lighter and holding her tongue into it. And I think people love that image. It's this idea of just being, like, hot and invincible. Is there something empowering or cathartic about watching a demonic woman objectifying, murdering, and devouring men? Abs I think there's, I, I mean, there's a reason why we cast cute boys in that movie. There's a reason why Adam Brody is in that movie, because he's a sex object for Jennifer to consume. One of the first characters she goes after is, like, the football hero. She goes after, like, the sweet little emo dude, too. I mean, she just, like, no man is safe. At least for me, it was very entertaining to watch her go after those guys. You know, I was, I am rooting for Jennifer when I watch the movie. It's like the ultimate fantasy to be both sexy and destructive and to be able to lure people into your web. Like, the guys go so willingly to her. It's kind of fun to watch. Which actually, in some ways, has echoes of repulsion in it. Oh, yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> wow. I appreciate that. So you tell me a little about that film and what happens in Repulsion. Repulsion? God, I saw that a long time. This is Polanski, right? Yeah, Polanski, Catherine Deneuve. I mean, I couldn't tell you. I have seen the movie. Is this the, is this the creepy where she's a... It's, yes. Yeah, she's, she, you know, she's staggeringly... She's Catherine Deneuve. <laughs> yeah. 65 or 6 and... The men like are attracted to her like flypaper, and she's essentially, you know, like you know, gets a little murdery. Yeah. All right. I'm definitely gonna watch that one again. You know, you'll like it. It's uh, yeah. Uh, it, it takes you deep into her pathology, essentially, and you realize basically how oh, this she's crazy, basically, but she's been driven mad, probably by sexual abuse, which is something you only figure out in the very last frame of the movie. So, oh wow. Yeah. I would say the same of Jennifer, actually. I think Jennifer has the psychology of an abuse victim yeah yeah um and and that's actually again what i think is kind of one of the big uh things about the demonic possession movies as well in particular is that they're they address a lot of that like um, trauma yeah well i mean like rosemary's baby i think you know which obviously was an influence on me although i could never hope to make such an elegant film it's yeah i mean that is about a woman completely losing her agency. To me, the, there's no scarier moment in the movie than when you realize her doctor is has turned on her. The feeling of the person that you've put your ultimate trust in, like your obstetrician, this guy who's like tending to your body and your femininity, and he is handing you over to the Satanists. It is intense. She has no voice whatsoever, basically, in that film. Oh, it's... <laughs> it's that is... That's, that might be like... this. That might be the scariest movie of all time. Oh, I mean, all the performances obviously are very solid in that film. What about Mia Farrow's performance in particular? What, I, hold on, for that guy to go by. I need somebody to say something nice about Mia Farrow. 
What are people saying negative things about Mia Farrow? No, no, it's just everybody usually talks about Ruth Gordon or John Kennedy. Oh, Mia Farrow has so many moments in that movie that are incredibly authentic. I love when she's just sitting at the mirror practicing baby names. She just goes, Susan, Susan. She's imagining how her voice would sound if she was calling her a little girl. And it's like those, there's just, and I also like she, her skepticism, she has this natural, healthy skepticism that then builds to the, you know, incredible horror and paranoia. But she's, yeah, Mia Farrow is great in that movie. And she, I feel like she must have, it must have been an incredible, like, physical commitment because she truly seems as though she is wasting away as you're watching her. That haircut doesn't help, but it's like when, when she has that party for her friends and they're like, Rosemary, you look horrible, like, she does. But actually, I watched that again recently with my wife, too. Like, uh, part that pissed my wife, offended my wife the most was when John Cassavetes, like, criticizes her haircut. Yeah, what does he say? She comes home, she's like, I've been to Fidel Sassoon. And he's like, "What? well, you look, I can't even remember. He's such a dick. I'm sorry. Like, he is, like, the worst character ever. Yeah, he's, there's a lot to be angry about in that movie. They make her drink that disgusting potion and, like, then what does he say? It doesn't. He comes to her bedside after she's given birth and says something like, we can have another one. It's like, so bad. So everything's going great for him, though. Yeah, well, his career has never been better. <laughs> I know a lot of people have said, like, well, if I had that apartment in Dakota, like, sure. I'll do that. I'll have a baby for Satan. Well, it's, uh, that's, uh, real estate films, though, became more of a thing in the 70s, I guess. Yeah. We're actually just talking about the Amityville Horror. Which, you know, I, I love the Amityville Horror. Yeah, yeah no, I, I like the original. Although I watched the remake recently, I had seen it before, but it was on TV, and so I, I sat through the whole thing. And not my fave, but I will say Ryan Reynolds went for it. Like you forget that, like pre Deadpool, he was doing like the dramatic stuff, and it was he went it was balls to the wall. But I prefer the original. What's good about the uh, the original? What you like about it? I think the best thing about it was probably that I was a little kid watching it, and <laughs> you know it was incredibly effective at the time. I think uh, there's just there's just a couple of good like you know the window slamming on the hand is like kind of like an iconic scene and the you know get out and like yeah it's creepy. With Jennifer's body, when you know it ran into a problematic reception, I guess we could say. Mm-hmm. So you you know uh, it's more like walking into a buzzsaw. It seemed to me when I look at the press and stuff, when I remember the press at the time, what was going on there? you think like what caused that reaction so i you know i don't know like i wish i understood how to like i don't have i i to this day like i'm not savvy about how to i'm not a marketing major <laughs> like i don't know specifically why people had a negative reaction to the movie i mean i certainly didn't think it was going to be like you know, a movie that everybody loved. It's not that kind of movie. And that wasn't even the intention going in. You know, we weren't trying to make um, E.T., you know. (laughs) Like, it was meant to be specific and, you know, for a specific type of viewer. Uh, You know, I hate to say it, I do think that, like, the reception of films is still affected by misogyny. I saw what happened just with the Ghostbusters movie, you know, like, I'm not saying it was a great film, but like people were hell bent on taking it down before it even came out. So I can't, I can't help but wonder if like, you know, similar forces are at work. Well, you know, the internet killing machine has just evolved that much more in the last 10 years. More so. I was sitting in the green room and I saw an article and the headline was, Star Wars fans want the new Han Solo movie to fail. And I thought, why on earth would a viewer be invested in the failure or success of a movie that they are not 
you know, that does not affect them in the, in the least. Like, and I read the article and it was like people feeling personally offended that like the recent Star Wars movies were not to their taste. And so now they want this one to fail to send a message to Disney. And I just thought this is ridiculous. Like, I don't understand this like pile on culture at all. And it has got only gotten worse since Jennifer's body. So the good news is I've never been like, like a super popular person. So I was fine. <laughs> Like, I'm used to being beat up, so it was just kind of par for the course. Is uh, the horror genre uniquely capable of dealing with the horrors of teenage life? I mean, probably no. I mean, you don't, the, the horrors of teenage life can be expressed in, across genres. What was I going to say? Oh my God, I completely lost my train of thought. I just suddenly started thinking about the Florida Project. Did you see that movie? I haven't seen it yet. It's oh in my man, pile. it's yeah. so good, and it's not about teenagers. But I was saying, like, it, in a in a way, it's one of it is a horror movie. You know, it's about like real life horrors, and it's it's really effective and incredible. But no, I mean, like, you know, I mean, being a teenager is hard. It's scary. It's like you're expected to behave like an adult, but you're still kind of mentally a child. And it's this time of like metamorphosis and. I don't know. I've written about teenagers a lot because it, the reason I'm specifically intrigued by that stage of human development is it's because emotions are so heightened. You know, the littlest thing is a huge drama, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> Interestingly, I think uh, artistically, uh, horror like gives people a way to uh, express these things, you know, visually and in other ways, even in performance and perhaps a, a larger scale than they might uh, in a conventional film. Oh, exactly. Yeah, you can really, uh, you can you can go there with horror. Like, it's like opera. You can just get, you can get very dramatic. And also for me, like, some of the strongest, like, female protagonists that I saw growing up were people like Nancy in A Nightmare on Elm Street. So it was, you know, in a weird way, it was empowering. That's why it was so strange to me that people like, you know, my mom, for instance, just saw it as, as violent or sexist because it, in a way like the women were the heroes you know final girls a thing and i don't know for me it was very exciting i think a lot of that is also determined by the critical response and backlash to it and that that's the narrative that was being told because i was under the same impression basically these things oh these films are terrible and misogynist so don't watch them so and i was in the old old horror movies but I didn't watch a lot of slasher things yeah because basically it felt like a hate crime and I mean slasher movies are exploitative like definitely that's part of the fun well watching them now it basically is like well the body count is you know if anything equal or more boys than girls basically and yeah and usually this there is the strong female character who makes their way through it or particularly by the time of Scream, is then actively ripping all the cliched parts apart and inverting everything. Yeah. In fact, I also had this discussion, too, is that with Jason Blum yesterday, just confirming the fact that, you know, there's this uh, idea that it was all marketed towards teenage boys, and in fact, the audience distribution is actually, like, 51% females. Wow, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow, Jason Blum. That guy figured it out. Why didn't I do that? <laughs> Do you like uh, any of the Blumhouse movies? I mean, have you seen I do. Those? I like Paranormal Activity. And, you know, I just think it's, right? Am I right about that? Yeah. yeah he's like the found footage stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's great. It's super inventive. I'm, uh, I actually never get tired of those movies. I know people think that that format has played out, but what did he do? What did they do most recently? Insidious and Conjuring. Oh, I like it. I like The Conjuring. I like Insidious. Yeah, those are good. Spooky. Conjuring was very spooky. Which, which was the one where they, like, found the creepy videos? Where uh, it was like... 
Let's see. Was that The Conjuring? No, that was. Um, um, no, was I can't remember. <laughs> Sinister. That's what I'm thinking of. Was that them? Yeah. I Spooky. So. Yeah, I still go see all that stuff. Not all of it. I don't get out as much, but. Children, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. When they get older, we're gonna have we're gonna have a grand time going to see horror movies. But right now, definitely not. You're in the Disney movie phase or something? Well, here's the thing, and I'm so happy about this, truly. Um, you know, when you go on Netflix and you or on Apple TV and you scroll through on the TV and you see the... This is sort of the modern equivalent of seeing the horror movies at the video store. So my kids see the scary picture, and, they, and the one that they really want to see is the Tim Curry original It miniseries because they see the spooky clown as they're scrolling through, and they're like, can we watch that? And I'm like, oh, so soon, guys. Like, so soon. We'll watch it all the time. But not yet. Yeah, they're like two, five, and seven. Wait a little bit. Um, yeah, I don't need them waking me up every hour because they're scared. That's my... Did you do that with your parent when you saw... Oh, God, I was scared all the time. And it got to the point where my mom was like, no more Freddy Krueger. Like, like she, she didn't want me to watch the movies anymore because I was inevitably, like, completely freaked out afterwards. But I loved it. I saved up all my money for a Freddy t-shirt. I took a knife and slashed it so it would look like he had grazed me. Cool. Real cool. You're a hardcore fan. Uh, yeah, I just loved it. Well, this movie's also a little more, you know, they got more of an imaginative edge to them, too, of course, because it takes place in the dreamscape, right? So, yeah. They were imaginative, and to me, they were real. Like, I didn't grow up around any kind of film production, so I was truly immersed in movies when I would watch them. I was like, this happened. Like, it wasn't like, you know, today's audiences have total awareness of how things are made. Like, zero. I think it would have blown my mind if someone had shown me, like, a behind the scenes of Nightmare on Elm Street. Because I would have just thought, like, oh my, like, really? Like, that guy didn't actually die? <laughs> like, Johnny Depp, though, came back from the dead. Right? Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp sure did. Talk about finding some young talent. Like... He's so wooden in that movie, too, and then he became such a great actor. Still had, uh, who, uh, let's see, Kevin Bacon in Friday the 13th, the first one? Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis, although I think she was, was she, she was kind of on the scene before Halloween. Just a little, I mean, yeah, I imagine she meant on some TV stuff or something. Yeah, so. she watched The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I'm guessing you don't. You want to see a horror movie, some body horror, these ladies with all their plastic surgery. It's like Cronenberg presents The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. You should watch it. Yikes. Okay. Yeah, the, the little girl from Halloween, Kyle Richards, is a real housewife now. I just thought you might want to know that. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's disappointing. Well, actually, um, we were talking about this, with how great it would be to do a, a documentary about uh, what happened to all the Disney kids, basically, from the 80s and 90s. And yeah, like the movies. ones who were in, like, just Watcher in the Woods and stuff. Yeah, like the, yeah. Or, yeah, whatever lives, but uh, oh. Disney would sue you till the end of the earth, probably. Disney probably wouldn't like that, no. Yeah, since they're about to own the world, maybe a mistake. They did a lot of messed up stuff back then. Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear the story about how they made a nature documentary and like chased a bunch of animals off a cliff to oh, get sure, the that's shot? Standard. No, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah. Disney, that's, man. I gotta... That's way, way back. I'm, I'm talking about current. You Wait, know, so you mean like Disney Channel kids, like yeah, Selena Disney Gomez? Channel kids, yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking like way back, like oh, no, no. Escape from Which Mountain stuff. Oh, like, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, yeah, no, those kids are all messed up. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, speaking of Cronenberg and body horror, what's the appeal or what's cool about those films? Uh, you know, I mean, they're so, they're unforgettable. Like, they're, he like he does it the best. Like, you never forget seeing The Fly. You never forget seeing 
I love Crash. Do you remember that movie? Yeah, yeah. I feel like it got overshadowed by, I mean, like, the Crash that was about racism, but there's also a Crash about having sex with amputated limbs. <laughs> it's like, Based on a book, which is a great book, yeah. I didn't even know it was a book. Oh, yeah. It's specific, which is, like, to me, the greatest thing there is. I would rather watch a bad specific movie than, like, a good movie that's just kind of, like, vanilla <laughs> gravy. <laughs> if you walk out of it and forget Exactly. Like, yeah, if, if someone has like a really specific POV and a thing that they do where I go, that's that person. I actually don't care if they're talented or not. For me, like a voice is everything. Have you seen The Brood? And if so, do you have any thoughts? I haven't seen The Brood. Oh, you should see The Brood. Though. All right, I'm going to make a list. It's a good <laughs> Uh, it's an early Cronenberg, but it's like, I can't really describe it without giving away. But there's there's a lot of, he's working through some issues. That's the thing. I feel like, I always say, and like, I could only, I could only wish to be as talented as David Cronenberg, but I always say like, I feel like, Thematically, all the stuff I've written over the years has been like, I'll call it like emotional Cronenberg because it's about people going through like ugly emotional transformations. It's like just something that I can't, it's like a theme that I can't stop going back to, even though I'm like completely repeating myself at this point. Like, I think, yeah, we both need therapy maybe is what I'm saying. <laughs> Were you a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan? I've seen Buffy. I, I wish I had like, I wish I was like a Buffy completist who had seen all of it. Like, cause I have not seen the entire show. I've seen some episodes. I, you know, it's funny, like, when Jennifer's Body came out, people were like, clearly you were influenced by Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I was like, at the time, I had never seen it. So, yeah. But as far as a, uh, a heroine and dealing with also the teenage, then later college life or whatever else. Oh, yeah. Chaz Whedon's just, he's great. Like, and the writing is like, it's as good as it gets. It's a crackling writing. Do you have any interest in vampires or what? Or zombies, actually. Let me oh, ask you zombies. That. What's up with zombies? Oh, man. Now, one movie I saw when I was little that really stuck with me was Return of a Living Dead. That one my mom turned off halfway through. <laughs> She'd had it. She thought it was very inappropriate. I love how my mom keeps coming up, but she was the gatekeeper. Oh, God, what other... Zombies are, like, even, like, I don't... And I don't know if this is, like, another side effect of Catholicism. Like, zombies are also very scary to me. Because, like, part of the Catholic dogma is that the, death, the dead are going to rise from the ground at one point. I think there might even be something about them feasting on the living, or maybe I just invented that. But, like, there's some kind of apocalyptic zombie scenario that is in Revelations, and it's like, that stuff scares me. If it wasn't in the Bible, it should be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Zombie stuff makes me uneasy. I know in the last few years it became more of like a mainstream popcorn thing and like, but when I was a kid, like, oof. It's interesting that it became a mainstream thing. I mean, what's driving that, do you think? I wonder what it was in the zeitgeist that made zombies popular. Maybe it was like Shaun of the Dead was so well done that like opened the floodgates to like everybody to try and make a zombie thing. I hope it was Shaun of the Dead. I mean, that's, that's a film that, you know... I'm not sure you can say that everybody has seen it, but then again, maybe everybody has seen it at this point. So, or a lot of people. Like maybe I guess. Yeah, maybe that was it. I don't. I don't so, know. Certainly, every filmmaker basically has probably seen Shaun of the Dead. Probably. Yeah. No, I think it was maybe. You know, maybe or maybe it was also nostalgia, just because the '80s were such like prime era of zombie movies, and it was just time for zombies to come back. Just like vampires. I don't understand why suddenly a few years ago, like vampires became the thing again. I hope now we get, like, a rash of, like, amphibian creature movies. Only Guillermo del Toro right now seems to be the only person who's, uh, you know, trying to bring back monster movies with proper monsters. Right? Yeah, it's like the creature from the Black Lagoon. 
So cool. You like that movie and uh, Shape of Water? Let's talk a little, just a little about the Shape I of Water. I love the Shape of Water, even though like I'm fully aware that it's like it, it is like a romantic, manipulative, old school Hollywood movie that hits all those beats, and like Michael Shannon is like a cartoon villain, but the movie is just so beautiful. The thing that blew my mind, and he's talked about this extensively, it's so, it's so interesting that he managed to make that creature into, like, a sexy leading man. Like, you completely understand why she fell in love with him. I probably sound like a creep, but, like, like my husband commented, he's like, I don't know, I, w- I don't want to put it exactly how he put it, because it's so vulgar, but <laughs> he was like, he was like, the way that creature stood, it was like he, like, wanted it. <laughs> And I was like, you're right. He had like a sexy stance. And then I Googled it and like, sure enough, like Del Toro had been like, stand with your pelvis out. Like he's literally like thrusting at her in every scene. And you're like, it's like, it's hot. Like it's like a hot, like sea creature porno. And I don't know how he managed to pull that off. Uh, my, my wife said basically the fish man's got a really cute butt. They said they spent like so much. Sally Hawkins said that they spent like an incredible amount of time on that creature's butt. Like, it was really important to Del Toro that, like, he have, like, an incredibly, like, rock-hard, shapely ass. And, like, yeah, like that, or, like, the fact she's when she's casually talking to Octavia Spencer about that she had sex with him, that killed me. Because, like, normally I think that would be, like, a more intense conversation. Like, you what? And then the movie instead it was like, oh, you didn't. Oh, you had sex with him? <laughs> it's just like, what movie am I watching? Like, it's so crazy. Also, I found out last night, I don't know if this is appropriate for the channel that we're on, a dildo manufacturer has made Shape of Water Fishman dildos, and they're completely sold out. That is a fun fact. People were very excited for that. <laughs> I don't know how to follow that up. Yeah, so sorry. I wish I could tell Doug Jones. Maybe he knows. They're really beautiful, too. They like the creature. Yeah, they're designed to look like what p- the dildo maker imagined um, the creature might look like. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Which I think is, you know, hard to do. Yeah. Hey, can't get enough of the conversation? Eli Roth's History of Horror is now streaming on Shudder, full and commercial free. At Shudder, we're the best selection in streaming genre. It's handpicked and curated by experts, including me. We cover the amazing spectrum of horror, thrillers, and suspense, including breakout revenge essentials like Mandy and Revenge, all-time classic The Changeling, horror fantasy hit series A Discovery of Witches, and our new Shudder original documentary, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Start your free two-week trial with promo code SHUDDERPOD. That's promo code S-H-U-D-D-E-R-P-O-D. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Hosted by Sam Zimmerman, produced by Liam Finn, sound designed by Jeremy Lee, music composed by Michael Tioli. Special thanks to executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sienga, Jonathan Koch, Stephen Michaels, James McNabb, Allison Berkeley, and Joseph Freed, as well as the AMC Networks and AMC Studio Development and Production teams, who allowed us at Shudder to make this. For Shudder, Owen Shiflett, Nicholas Lazo, and Robin Jones. This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries, and its unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability and criminal prosecution. Country of First Publication, United States of America, History of Horror, Uncut.